Welcome to the Community Hope Podcast. We exist to share hope with more people in more places. For more information on this podcast or our church, please visit communityhope.org. Now stay tuned for our Sermon of the Week. We are starting a new series uh, today called Bystander. I'm so, so, I, so excited about this series. I probably say this about every series, but I don't care. I'm super excited about this series. I was t- geeking out and telling my wife about it the other day, and she was like, man, you're really pumped about this. I am. And uh, so we're going to be talking about a concept. You know what? We may have to turn the TV off. That's okay. Um, as long as this is working up there. This is what I believe is probably the two most misuse and misunderstood words when it comes to Christianity or religion. Because if you separate theology and, and religion for a minute, we all know what these words mean. But then when you infuse religion into it, it just gets, it just gets really, really muddied. And that's, that's, un, that's unfortunate. Because if you separate theology and religion, we all know what these words believe. When it comes to faith or when it comes to belief, we believe based on evidence. Or we believe based on confidence in the person delivering the information. Okay, let me give you an example, okay? I hate to do this to you, but we're going to go to math class for just a second. Someone tell me, raise your hand, what is 8 times 8? 64, very, very good. How do you know that? Because your teacher told you so, right? Did anybody in class go, I don't know. Like, I need to line up eight rows of eight things and count these and make sure eight times eight is 64. Did anybody do that? Probably not. I mean, if you did that, you you verified it based on evidence. But what did you do? You believed it based on confidence in the person delivering the information, right? That's what belief means. But unfortunately, when it comes to religion, it's like we can somehow separate and we get really, really confused about these words, faith, faith and belief, that we get all kinds of crazy concepts when it comes to this. And I'm just here to tell you today that I don't think that it has to be that way. I don't, I don't think that we have to get all confused because, unfortunately, when we, put, when we do put religion in the mix, it gets really messy. And religious faith and belief are often divorced from re- reason and confused with hope. Let me give you an example, okay? So are, do you think that they're coming today? Well, I, I sure hope so. Well, did they show up last time? No. Did they show up the time before that? No. But I hope so. I hope they're coming. Right? That, that's what we tend to think when it comes to belief or faith, that it's divorced from reason. It's divorced from evidence, and it's just this wishful thinking, and we, we confuse it with hope. And, but that's what, not what we're challenged to do. That's never what Jesus challenged us to do, to just have faith. Because I was raised in the church, and see, I was just the one that was daring enough in Sunday school to raise the hand and correct the Sunday school teacher. Yeah, I was that kid. I was that kid who later on in life I got when I was a Sunday school teacher. Okay, God bless me. And I was the one who was just willing to question things. But I was told really quick, you don't. You don't question. You don't doubt. In fact, whenever I did raise a difficult question, the response I would get would never, ever satisfy me. It was just, well, you just have to believe. You just have to believe. Now, if you were, was anyone here raised in the South? No, everyone's from North. I was raised in Indiana. I know you don't feel like Indiana is South until you go there. Trust me, it's South, baby. 
Okay, so when the South, we didn't say you just have to believe. You had to throw another word on there. You just have to believe, brother. You just have to believe, brother. You just have to take it by faith, sister. That whenever we, some little kid had the audacity to question something, have the audacity to express doubt, this is what we were told. Well, you just have to believe. You just have to believe. See, I was taught blind faith. And the blinder, the better. See, my grandfather, who I have a deep, deep respect for, who is in heaven today, he was an Assemblies of God pastor for 30 years. He taught me blind faith because he had blind faith. In fact, he had a saying. He would get up and he would start preaching. And so he was a southern preacher, okay, because my family originally comes from Arkansas. He said, bless God, (laughs) Hallelujah. I believe that if the Bible says that if there was hardwood floors and running water in the belly of the whale that Jonah saw, hallelujah, I would believe it. That sounds good, doesn't it? Blind faith. Blind faith is if the Bible says it, I believe it. You don't question it. You don't doubt it. You don't dare raise your hand and say, well, wait a minute. Explain that one to me. You just believe, brother. You just have faith, sister. And maybe, maybe that was your experience. Maybe you were just told to believe. But then you grew up and you went out into the real world and something happened. I want to share with you a quote from uh, a really, really brilliant man who I had the opportunity to meet. He's what's called an apologist. And basically, he's a defender of the faith. Okay? He has his doctorate and he goes around from college campus to college campus debating any atheist who will, who will debate him. This is something that he has to say, and it's pretty fascinating. He said, the reason so many people are easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it in the first place. You were told just to believe. Just believe, brother. Just believe, sister. Maybe that was your experience. See, that was my experience. I was told just to believe, but then I went out into the, quote, real world, and then I was beginning to get talked out of my faith. And I know I've shared this story with him a million times, but I'll never forget it. It slapped me in the face, face as a teenager when I was out doing exactly what Cindy talked about, witnessing to people. And I remember someone had the audacity to ask me, why do you believe that the Bible is true? And my only answer was, because the Bible says it is. That was it. That was the foundation of my faith. And all of a sudden I realized that the answer was insufficient. That answer wasn't enough. He's saying, give me evidence. He's saying, I don't trust you. Why should I believe what you believe? And I had nothing. I had a gun with no bullets. And it scared me. And so it sent me on a journey. I needed better answers than just belief. I needed a more sufficient answer than, well, just because the Bible says so. I needed more than that. And so today we're going to be looking at the eyewitness account of John. Because what I want you to understand is that there's a difference between by faith and because of faith. Those are two two totally different things. See, John, who we're going to read about today, didn't say, well, you know what? I met this guy named Jesus. I put my faith in him, and I just hoped it would all work out. No. See, that's by faith. Well, by faith, I just choose to believe it's true. doesn't matter if I have any evidence for it or not. By faith, it's true. No, that, that's not what John experienced at all. No, see, it was because of faith. Because what happened is, was John saw things. And it changed the way he believed. So that's what we're going to begin to dive into today. In fact, the account of John, see, John writes things a little bit differently than we write today. 
If you ever had to write a term paper in high school or college, you know right at the beginning, what do you do? You put your thesis statement right there. You tell people, this is why I'm writing this paper. John does it, but he does it actually at the end of what he writes. He writes at the end of, his, of his, what he writes. He tells us why he wrote it. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And when he's saying this book, he's talking about the gospel of John. He says in John chapter 21, in the next verse, but these are written that you may believe. And what is he, what is he challenging us to believe? That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But he doesn't just tell us what to believe. He tells us why. Why this matters. And this is why this matters to you today. This is why I hope that you'll sit on the edge of your seat and listen to what I have to say today. Because it's not that you would just believe. But here is the why. Here at the end of verse 31. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what matters. It's not just to have faith just to have faith. It's not believe just to believe. It's that there is actual a sequence to this. John experienced this sequence, that there was these events that took place. He says that they were signs, that it pointed towards something, and it proved to him that there was evidence. Evidence what? To believe that Jesus was who he said he was, and then that caused him to trust in Jesus. And we tend to get it all backwards. We tell people, well, just trust Jesus, and it all is going to work out. That's not what John did. John just didn't meet Jesus and say, well, I put my faith in him, and I just hoped it would all work out. No, he said, I experienced some events. I saw some things. I heard some things that I couldn't explain. That They provided evidence for me to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And it's interesting that he uses those words signs instead of miracles. He doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. And John actually walks through seven different signs. That's how he formats his writing. It's fascinating the way John writes his account because the reality is, is that at this point in his life, he's the only apostle left. All of his friends are dead. All of his friends have given their life for what? For something that they wanted to be true? For something they believed that they had faith in? No, every single one of them will tell you the same thing. When the sword was put to their neck, they all died in horrific ways. When, they were, when it was time to fess up, they said, I can't deny what I've seen and heard. Not what I hope to be true, what I've seen and what I've heard. Jesus was dead. I saw him die, but then I had breakfast with him. I can't deny what I've seen and heard. Go ahead, kill me if you want. They tried to take John's life, but it didn't work. And so here he is, an old man. His is the last account to be written. All these people are coming to him saying, John, we want to hear your perspective on what happened. And so he bases his writing around these seven signs. And it's interesting, again, that he calls them signs. He doesn't call them miracles. Because Jesus' miracles were not random acts of kindness. And if you read through the account, that's what we tend to think. Oh, Jesus saw the sick person and he healed them. No, they weren't random acts of, of kindness. They were signs. And signs are important because signs point towards something. A sign was pointing towards Jesus' identity, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so we're going to take the next six weeks leading up to Easter, and we're going to be looking at each one of these signs. Today, the first sign is one of those that if you read it, you go, what? Like, why is this one even in there? It's when Jesus turns water to wine. Now, it's fascinating is by this point in history, 
it was almost like everyone had heard this one. And so it's almost like John, he describes it, but yet he doesn't. It's, he just assumes that you have a lot of information that you, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, have you heard the one about fill in the blank? He's telling the story from that perspective. And so we're going to turn to John chapter 2 if you want to follow along. We're going to be looking at John chapter 2 starting in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. So Jesus' mother must have been on the catering committee or something. Like weddings at that time, they went on for days. They were a huge celebration. Jesus' mother was there, and what else? Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So John is telling this what? From an eyewitness perspective. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. This was a big deal. This was hugely embarrassing. You know, it'd be like you going to a wedding, and they ran out of, I don't know, steak. I don't know. If you, maybe they don't. If you ever been to a wedding, they serve steak? Bad analogy. But they ran out of wine. It's a big deal. And so Jesus goes, why Mary went to Jesus, I'm not really sure. But the next thing Jesus says is fascinating. In, in verse 4, look at how he addresses his mom. Woman, men, do not try this at home. Don't go there. And I love what he says next, okay? And I'm going to reveal to you the next part, and every man, you can just silently wink at me because I don't want you to give me a hearty amen because you're going to get elbowed, okay? But I'm telling you, this next thing that Jesus says, a man thinks every single day. Woman, why do you involve me? Every man in the room is going, yep. I don't want to get hit, but that is so true. Woman, why do you involve me? Now, this sounds really, really disrespectful, but we need to go back into that culture, in that context. It would be equivalent to him saying, my lady. Now, I don't, we don't use that vernacular today, but it's like he didn't want to say, mom. You know, like he, he says, woman. You know, it, was, it was actually a term of respect. It wasn't a term of disrespect. But again, men, this is not something you want to be like Jesus in, okay? So don't go home today and, no, just don't. Woman, why do you involve me? Look at what he says next. He says, my hour has not yet come. What's he saying? Like, I, I came to save the world, mom, not weddings. Like, this is not the way I want to reveal being God. Like, this doesn't feel very messianic, you know? Like, I, I, this is not the way I came. But then this is just like, again, I love how true life this is. This is like every male-female interaction you've ever seen. So what does Mary do? Do whatever he tells you and walks away. Every male-female interaction you've ever seen, it's right here. For some reason, she just knew that her son was very, very resourceful. And he could do something about it. Now look at what happens next. This is something that I've grazed past time and time and time again as I've read the story, and I didn't quite understand the significance of it until going through it this time. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now here's where I'm going to have to give you a little background information. So at that time, as a Jew, there were all these religious laws that you had to follow. Okay? All these ceremonial washings that you had to do. Some of it was actually in the Old Covenant. Some of it was actually in uh, that covenant between God. But the, as what tends to happen, religious leaders came along and they added more to it. Okay, that that wasn't enough. 
we had to do more. So they had all these ceremonial washings that you had to do to be right with God. So they had these stone water jars, and they were sitting there empty. It says each one of them held between 20 and 30 gallons. And here's the fascinating symbolism of what is taking place here in this moment. So Jesus says to the servants, verse 7, fill the jars with water. So he tells them to, again, we have to go from our context back then, because it wasn't like they could just turn the garden hose on and fill them up. Imagine, first of all, stone water jars, 20 to 30 gallons. Have you ever seen a 50-gallon drum? About half that size, made out of stone. These were no easy thing, and it could, like I said, they didn't fill it up with a hose. They'd had to go to a lake or a river or a, 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 a well. It was no easy task for them to fill these up. This probably took them hours of work to follow Jesus' instruction. What were they doing? And Jesus wasn't the master of the ceremony. These weren't his servants to boss around. But they followed Jesus' instruction. Why? Based on what we said earlier. For some reason, they put confidence in what Jesus had to say. For some reason, they decided to follow what he had to say. And again, it took hours of work. But this was symbolic. Again, what was Jesus coming to do? He was here to replace something old with something new. That symbolism of everything it took in this old, ancient order to get to God, he was, he was about to replace. Something new had arrived. Someone new had arrived. And he's there proving it. In fact, I want to read just one quote to you from a, from a commentator, F.F. F. Bruce. The water provided for purification as laid down by Jewish law and custom stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremony which Jesus Christ was to replace with something better. Here he is replacing this old antiquated system which what it used to take for you to get to God. He's here to replace it with something here to re- something so much better. And if you've ever taken the time to read through the Hebrew scriptures, if you've ever taken the time to read through Leviticus, every time I read that I go, oh thank you Jesus, I don't have to do any of that to get to God. If you've ever taken the time to read it, and unfortunately, we've done a lot of damage in the name of Christianity because we stand in a new covenant with God and we reach back into an old covenant and pull something out that we like to beat someone else over the head with. And it's sad, it's unfortunate, because guess what? As a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not obligated to any of that. God came to give us something new, brand new, and this is symbolic of what he's doing there and turning this water into, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Now he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. At no point does, it, does John tell us when the miracle takes place. He just says, fill them up with water, now take some of this water to the master of the ceremony. So they did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water. Wait, wait, a, wait a minute, John, what do, you, what do you mean? He doesn't tell us when it happened, does it? Because it's like everybody knows. The water that had what? That had been turned into wine. We have no idea when the miracle took place. Can you imagine that act of faith it was for the servant? Jesus says, here, go take this glass of water to the master of the ceremonies. Why in the world would they do that? Because they put trust in the one giving the instruction. And so, that's what they do. And this is, this is what happens next, verse 9 and 10. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. This is, again, this is odd, isn't it? This is a miracle, a sign that only the servants and the disciples standing there knew. No one at the wedding celebration knew about it. 
Nobody knew about it, except for this small group of people. I can only imagine John recounting this and going, wait a minute, that was perfect. I didn't get it at the time. I didn't understand some symbolism of it, but I get it now. It was perfect. In fact, look at what it, what's said here in verse 10. When he gets to the wine, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But then what does he say next? Verse 10, but you have saved the best till now. It was symbolic. Guess what? God had to. He had saved the best until now, and that was Jesus. He was getting rid of all this old order of things, this old order that you had to step through all these religious hoops to get to God, that you had to follow all these commands, that you had to follow all this legalistic that was so burdensome that no one can do. He came to get rid of it all and to give us something brand new, which was what? You come to God through Christ alone, through faith alone. He could not have made it any simpler for us. And I'm so glad he did. I'm so glad that he did, that I get to be a pastor, not a priest. Because our service today would look a whole lot different and we had to follow all those old rules. Okay? I'm so glad, I'm so glad that that's not the way it works anymore. That we come to God by what? faith. And so what I want you to see is this, this story that on the surface it seems like, well, what's the big deal? You know, he saved the wedding. Woohoo! Like, big deal. No, this was more than a miracle. It was a sign. It was a sign, what? Pointing towards who Jesus was. What he was coming to replace with something so much better. Back to a commentator I want to show you again, F.F. Bruce. Christ had come to fulfill and terminate the old order and to replace it by a new worship in spirit and in truth which surpasses the old as much as wine surpasses water. This new covenant, this new agreement changed everything. So, back to John's perspective. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, back to where we started, this word faith and the word believe. His disciples believed in him. Why? Because Jesus said, hey, just trust me. Just have faith, brother. Just take it by faith, sister. Is that what Jesus said? Why did they believe that Jesus was who he said he was? Because there was a reason to believe. They saw something that they couldn't explain. And this is only this is the first of many. When they saw Jesus raised someone from the dead, when they saw Jesus command nature, it was a sign. It was pointing towards something. They had a reason to believe. For them, what was that reason? It was seen. They saw things that they couldn't explain. But for us, today, 2,000 years later, our, our faith comes by what? Hearing. Our faith comes by hearing the accounts of the eyewitnesses who were there. So, John came to a conclusion. He said, what I've seen, what I've experienced, I've come to a conclusion. And he actually starts off his book by telling us what his conclusion was about Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's like, I've just written this down because I've seen things 
I've experienced things. The only way I can explain it, it's like God came down in a body to show us what God the Father was like. And that's how he books in his account is at the beginning and then also at the end. He tells us why he's writing what he's writing. But these are written that you may believe. Why? Just to take it by faith? No, because I've seen things and I've experienced things. And I'm writing them down for you to understand the reason why you believe what you believe. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So my question to you today is, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to ask you a really hard question, why? If someone were to ask you, why do you believe what you believe, what would your answer be? Well, I was just raised a Christian because my mama and papa said it was true, because the preacher said it was true, because I, I had experience, I, I had these warm fuzzies. See, I challenge you with that answer because you know what? I, could have, I have a feeling that every Mormon, every Jehovah Witness, every Muslim, everyone, just about every other faith would tell you the same answer. Well, I was raised this way. Well, the religious leader told me it was true. Well, I had an experience in a temple that gave me goosebumps that made me think it was true. I've interacted with Mormon missionaries, and they tell me the exact same thing. Based on what? A subjective experience. Based upon the words, I wasn't there. <laughs> I didn't see this. So for me, I had to come to a deeper revelation, and this is what started the journey for me. Now I have a much more sufficient answer. Why? Well, I have a lot of reasons, but step number one is what I know to be true is that with the exception of Judas, every single one of those 11 apostles who said, I saw it, I heard it, I even touched, I put my hand. Jesus gave me, invited me to put my nails, put my hands in the nail holes. I was there. He was real. He was no ghost. I ate with him. I saw it. Every single one of them were what? Willing to die for something they wanted to be true? No, for something they saw and heard. Why do I believe what I believe? Number one is because of eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts who are willing to give their life for what they saw and what they heard. And the challenge to you and I today, 2,000 years later, is this. Do you realize that if those 11 apostles had not been willing to tell what they saw and what they heard, and if those, Paul tells us about it, that Jesus even appeared to 500 different people. If those 500 had not been willing to go and tell others what they saw and what they heard, Christianity would have died in that generation. It would have. And today what I want you to see is that the church will die today if we are not willing to tell other people the truth. It will die with us. The only reason it continues is because why? Because we keep telling. We keep telling. And so that's why I've said our mission, the reason why we exist is very, very simple. It's sharing that hope with more people in more places. Now, I, I feel like I, you know, whenever I get my chair out, I'm about to get real, right? All up to this point, it's just been fake and phony. But now when I get the chair out, it gets real. How many of you were here with us last Sunday? 
we, we had a special speaker here. His name was Ty Buckingham. And I feel like I need to confess something today. He said something that deeply, deeply offended me. Maybe it offended you, too. In fact, it offended me so bad. I'm not even, I, I'm really, it gives me reservations whether I want to bring him back or not. I feel like I owe an explanation to you as to what I'm talking about. He was talking about this experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit and how that the whole purpose of being filled with that, with that Holy Spirit is so that we would be empowered to tell others about Jesus. Here's the statement. Oh, the suspense is killing you, isn't it? He said, if you were filled with the Spirit years ago and you're not now leading people to Jesus, he said, that's messed up. I was like, ouch. That one hurt. And then he said, how many of you in this room, you know people who aren't Christians? Raise your hand. And I raised my hand. <laughs> you ever had God talk to you like, like real time, like in that moment? So then I raised my hand, God's like, what's their names? It's like, I know people, I do, just leave me alone. Lots of people that aren't Christians, just be quiet. It hit me like a ton of bricks, it did. Because, see, he said, outside of your role as a pastor, I know you get up every Sunday and you preach, but outside of that role, in your personal, just living, going around day-to-day life, how often do you interact with people and share your faith with them? And I go, can we talk about something else? It was challenging. It challenged me personally. How much am I one-on-one, life-on-life, relationship with relationship, eyeball-to-eyeball with someone else, not because I'm a pastor, because I'm just Brad Singleton. And I say, hey, man, let me, let me share with you something that's forever changed my life. Brad, how often are you doing that? I had to be very honest. I'm not. And if that's too much for you to take, don't worry. We'll sing a song here in a few minutes. You can get out the back door. You don't ever have to come back. I just, I just had to be honest. The church will cease to exist if we stop doing what perpetuated the church from day one. And that's life on life, eyeball to eyeball, sharing what? Just exactly what John did. This is what I know to be true. And guess what? Like what John said, and by believing, I've experienced life in his name. And I want you to experience that as well. So, I hate to get too personal here, but how often do you do that? How often are you sharing that life that God's given you? Because of our lack of doing that, that's why you look around and you see empty seats. The reason, just about every one of you can raise your hand, the reason why you're here, why? is because someone invited you. Someone extended an invitation to you. 80% church, nationwide, 80% of people who are in churches are there because of a personal invite. I'd love to be delusional enough to think that they're coming for my preaching. I know better. I'd love to be delusional enough to think that it's just because we have this great facility, because we have the best cookies in Montezuma. No, they come from the gas station. I know better. I mean, they are good cookies. I don't want to, you know, downplay the gas station cookies. Why are you here? This morning, I got so excited because I get to come to church. You know why I got so excited to come to church? Because I know I was going to be with my friends. 
I'm just guessing that was one of the reasons why you're here. And unless people experience this, they won't be back. Unless people experience that somewhere where my friends are, they probably won't be back. Now, I, I don't want to, in no way do I want to try to heap guilt and shame and blame on you, but I will ask you hard questions that ask, I had to ask myself hard questions. If I've believed this and I've experienced life in his name, why, why am I not sharing it? Why am I not sharing it? This is, this is a hard question I had, to, I had to wrestle with. What am I going to do differently about it? How am I going to course correct? What am I going to do? Because I want you to know that I believe in our mission down to the very core of who I am. This is why we exist. And so we've decided as a staff, as a leadership team, we want to do everything we could, can to put tools into your hand that's just going to help you do what's going to perpetuate the church for the next generation. And that's us sharing the hope of Jesus with more people in more places. Again, not in some weird, fake, phony, televangelist kind of way. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being forceful or weird. I'm just talking about relationship, life on life, just as normal and natural as can be. Hey, can I pray with you? Hey, can I share something that, I, that I've been reading, I've been learning? Very normal, natural, relational. That's what I'm talking about. How can we empower you to do just that? So I just want to let you cue you in on where we're going with this. So this series leads us up to Easter. Easter is the easiest time of the year to invite somebody to come to church because of all the CEOs. I love CEOs. You've never heard that stupid pastor joke of mine. A CEO is a Christmas and Easter only. I love CEOs. I do. I love them. That's twice a year that they'll come to church. I'm not mad at them. I'm not going to beat them up. I'm thrilled that twice a year they will give me an opportunity to minister to them. I love them. Come on in. I'd rather see you twice a year than never get to see you. Come on in. So why not? Let's leverage that. Let's leverage that, that Easter is the easiest time in the world to bring somebody to church with you. It's easy. It's been set up by our culture. Any time of the year, people probably won't think it's awkward or weird. It's like, hey, would you, would you come to church with me on Easter? What do you think? So for us, that's goal number one, is that you would bring somebody with you to church on Easter. Easiest time of the year to do it. Now, here's goal number two for us. It's not just that we can have double the people here on Easter Sunday morning and then next Sunday go right back to the same crowd. Okay, that's not the bullseye on the target for us. The bullseye on the target for us is that every one of those people would experience this here. I felt like those people genuinely cared about me. That's my hope. And so we're putting all of our energy into that. As a staff, we're dreaming, we're planning, we're scheming about what can we do to empower us as a church to be the most warm, welcoming, inviting atmosphere we can possibly produce. That's what we're wanting to do. Because the last thing we want to do is that we would be a barrier to people experiencing the hope of Jesus Christ. Because we all know that that's a reality. Okay, I was watching an interview this week with Justin Bieber. And I already hear giggles. Oh, Justin Bieber, whatever, yeah. 
That's the weird guy with the mustache, yeah. He's recently come back to faith. And this interview was, it was telling. He said, for so long I didn't take my faith, I didn't take Christianity seriously because of all the Christians I saw not taking it seriously. Christians were actually an obstacle to faith for him. Not a conduit. They were an obstacle, not a conduit. Now, obviously, he's experienced a different environment. He's experienced a church that does take their faith very, very seriously. And it's sent him on a journey. They've been part of that journey of people taking their faith very, very seriously. And I know Justin Bieber isn't more important than any other human being on this earth. I know Kanye West isn't more important than any other human being on this earth. God loves them just as much as he does any other human being. But he loved them enough to send someone into their life to, in a very relational way, share truth with them. And that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to be about. So like I said, we want to do everything we can to empower you to bring somebody with you. And we're going to do everything we can to make this environment as welcoming as we know how. So that's why I'm calling on you. That's why I need your help. Because if I'm the only one that does this, trust me, this ain't going to work. When I say the church, I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about us. Right? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we are the church. I'm not the church. The church board isn't the church. The staff isn't the church. We are the church. Unless, unless we decide, yes, this is what we're going to do, this will never work. Trust me, I know. I've tried it many times. I've tried many times to get up on a microphone and say, this is where we're going. No one's following me. So that's, that's my challenge to you is, so number one, would you already be thinking about who you could, you could bring with you to church on Sunday, on Easter Sunday? And number two, would you be a part of helping us create that environment? Because we're going to be recruiting you, okay? If you're on our welcome team, trust me, we're going to be recruiting you. If, 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 you aren't, if you're plugged into a, one of our community groups, we're going to be recruiting you. Say, hey, can you help us? Can you help us? Because the bullseye on the target for us is not just more butts and seats. It's relational connection. Someone there took the time to know my name, hear my story, and care about me. That's the bullseye on the target for us. So that's where we're putting all of our energy this Easter season. All of our energy is going there, okay? So I just want you to understand that's the direction we're going. It's gonna be all about Jesus. Not about Easter bunnies, not about Easter eggs. It's all about Jesus. That's where we're putting all of our energy. Is that Easter Sunday? How can we do everything we can to focus the spotlight on him? Because that seventh sign that John talks about is I saw him nailed to a cross and I had lunch with, uh, had, I had breakfast with him on the beach. That seventh sign is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is why we have this crazy phenomenon of Easter. Yeah, it's actually Resurrection Sunday. The culture has hijacked, just like Christmas and everything else. It's about the resurrection. And I so desperately want to hear more and more stories like we heard this morning from Cindy of how, how God used someone else to share Jesus with me and I was never the same. That's why I get out of bed in the morning. That's one of the reasons why I do what I do. Why? 
so that I can hear more stories like that. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was hopeless, and now I have hope. That's why we exist, and that's why we do what we do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up if they would. And I'm just going to ask you today, where are you at? I realize that whenever I speak that it's, I have a spectrum of people. This may, be your, this may be your first time ever to walk into a church. I don't know. You may have been around church your whole life. I don't know what your expression of faith is, but I so desperately want to invite you into taking a step deeper. I just want to invite you into taking a step deeper, examining the evidence for yourself that our faith in Jesus Christ is not a wish and a prayer. It's not once upon a time in a land far, far away. It's so much better than that. It's based upon an event that actually took place that no historical scholar worth any of their weight can deny. Yeah, there really was someone named Jesus Christ. He really did live. He really was nailed to a cross. And three days later, his followers were convinced that he came back to life. Every historical scholar will agree to those facts. Now, they'll try to come up with another explanation as to what happened. But they can't deny any of that. That Jesus really lived. He really died. And his followers were so convinced that he, was, that he came back to life that all of them were willing to die. For what they hoped to be true? No. For what they saw. For what they heard. They said, even what our hands have touched. We have, we have so much undeniable proof. He said, for, for me, it was worth giving my all for. So I ask you today, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, would you choose today to believe in that eyewitness account of John? Would you choose today to put your faith in him? Because what he says, through doing that, you could have life. I believe that believing in Jesus not only doesn't make your, better, make your life better, it makes you better at life. Because he gives you a whole new framework for how you operate. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. We're going to talk to God for just a minute. And if that's you, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ or maybe you did a long time ago and you feel like you've drifted away, you feel like your faith is really shaky, but today there's something burning inside of you that you need to make a response. You need to respond to what Jesus is talking, what, what you heard today, I want to give you that opportunity to respond. And it's, I'm not going to ask you to step out of your seat. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm going to ask you to do it right there where you're standing. We're going to talk to God for just a minute. You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to bow your head. God will hear you right where you are. But I'm going to ask you to do just that. If you be willing to take a step of faith, instead, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, 
and you would like to receive God's free gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness that he offers you, I just ask you to put your open hands right out in front of you like you're receiving a gift. And I just want to pray with you. God, I thank you for every person in this room. Like I said, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, but right now in this moment, they're saying, I want to respond to you out of faith. I believe. I believe that you died. I believe that you rose again. And I believe that you did it all for me so that I can know that my sins are forgiven and that when my life is over, I'll be it with you in heaven. I thank you for every person in this room right now that's embracing that truth by faith. And I thank you, God, for the transformation that's taking place inside of them. In Jesus' name. We're going to sing one final song together. If you were impacted by this sermon or if you have any questions, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at Community Hope on Facebook and Instagram or at our website, communityhope.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Hope has it made.